Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Hebrews chapter 1 and 11. Beginning a series on extreme Christianity and extreme faith. And we've just sung about that. The song that Terry sang, we were talking earlier, that regardless of what happens in our world, there is one thing that doesn't change. And that, of course, is the gospel. It is an extreme message it never changes. Scriptures never change. Sometimes our interpretations of certain passages change or get updated, and that's all right. But the gospel is the gospel, isn't it? And regardless of your circumstances, you can come to church on Sunday morning or wherever you go and hear the gospel. So we celebrate that today. Hebrews chapter 1 and 11. Today we're talking about an extreme faith, about how this faith that we practice really is extreme, the very nature and even the specific teachings and the demands that God places upon us. As always, we pray, which when you think about it is an extreme idea, that the God who is God, the God who is over the universe, literally stops everything to hear you. He's not too busy to hear what you say. Some of you know that my wife had an accident a couple weeks ago. So I've been on the phone with lots of insurance agents, etc., etc., for the last couple of weeks. And one agent in particular I've been on the phone with a lot. And I called him up. It had been two or three days since I talked to him. And he didn't have a clue who I was. I said, I've talked to you about this several times. He goes, what's that number that I got, sir? And then he gave him the number. And he read it. And obviously there was nothing on the phone for about 30 seconds. I go, Kevin, how are you today? And obviously, he didn't have a clue who I was. And that's just the way it is, isn't it? Except when I pray, I say, Father, he goes, Kev, what can I do for you? He doesn't have to look up my number. He knows who I am. And that really is an extreme idea, isn't it? That the God who is God knows you by name. So today we begin with prayer to the God who knows your name. Join me, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence, for life itself, for always being there for us, for establishing this routine where we gather and worship and study your word, and sing songs of praise to you, and remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Thank you, Father. That was a great idea you had for us. Thank you. It gives us an understanding that regardless of what changes in our world, the God who is God, the Jesus who saves us, never changes. Thank you. We come before you, Father, in the name of that Jesus, asking for mercy and forgiveness for our sin. We ask that you cleanse us of our impatience, of our apathy, of our rebellion against your leadership. We ask you, Father, to cleanse us of all those things that drag us down. We pray this morning for your spirit to work in our lives, not just to cleanse us, but to recreate us in the image of Jesus, to give us strength, to nurture us in hard times, to give us guidance when we don't know what to do, and stability in a world that is 
unstable. We come to you, Father. We really are desperate. You're all we have. You're the only one that never changes. So we come to you in faith. We pray for those who have power over us, for those who are in positions of leadership. Give them wisdom and guidance and discernment. We pray that in this time of division over all things political, that you would work a work of unity. Help us to focus on those things that can draw us together. Help us to minimize those differences that threaten us. Help us to choose sometimes to compromise when it's the right thing to do. Help us to value human life, to treat people as equals, to help those who need help. We pray for humble hearts, for generous hearts, for hearts that work towards peace. As always, we pray that you'd be with the families of our first responders and our soldiers. Protect them wherever they serve. Comfort their families. And be with them, Father, in their times of loss. And Father, again, we thank you. We are wealthy. We have everything here. Thank you. Teach us now from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation that started out pretty simple and then it got really complicated and became a really extreme situation? Sometimes it, I work on cars a lot and sometimes my experiences are like that. My wife knows that it is a joke when I say this would be about an hour job and she laughs out loud because she knows that's going to be at least a whole weekend and maybe two weeks or three weeks depending on how much screaming she hears coming from the garage. Things happen, don't they? Something that starts out just going to replace a part. And some of you will know this. Just replacing a part becomes a major ordeal when a bolt breaks off. And that's always a bad thing. And something very simple becomes a really complicated and extreme thing which demands a lot of other tools and a lot of other parts coming off and things like that. It happened to me when I work on trucks and cars. It happens to me when I rebuilt an old house years ago. It happens to you, doesn't it? Things that should be simple aren't. You find things out. You ruin something. There's something you didn't know about. And what is simple becomes complex and hard and extreme. Following Jesus is like that. When you receive Jesus, and don't raise your hands or anything like that, when you received Jesus, did you worry about the complexities of life on earth? When you received Jesus as Savior, did you wonder about the difficulties of dealing with abortion and evolution and creationism and all those kinds of things? Probably not. When you received Jesus as Savior, like me, I just said, Jesus saved me. I knew that I felt separated from God by my sin, and I didn't really understand what to do, but the preacher said, if you want to follow Jesus as Savior, just come forward, I'm going to help you in prayer. And that was enough for me. My mom and dad made me go and talk to the preacher, and they made me go to the preacher's office, and that preacher talked me through, which was really a very simple decision. Ask Jesus to save you, Kevin. Confess your sins to him, and promise to live for him, and you shall be saved.
And for me, it was that simple. I was 12 years old. Probably most of you had that similar experience. We don't get saved. We don't make a commitment to Jesus understanding everything. We just know we need Jesus, and so we receive him and are saved. And then you start to grow in your faith. You listen to sermons, maybe. That's a stretch sometimes. But you pay attention to a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you read the Bible yourself, and you start thumbing through that old Bible of yours, and you read it. And, and most of us go through a period of time somewhere early in our lives of faith where we start reading scripture and paying attention and read a few books and paying attention in Bible study and we begin to realize that there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into following Jesus that we never thought about before. And it doesn't mean it's bad or good. It just means it's not just as simple as receiving Jesus as Savior. That's how it starts. Yes. But when you take seriously this idea of following Jesus with your life, of submitting to him daily, and you start reading scripture, you begin to realize that things are a lot more complex, maybe more extreme than you realize. So for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about that very thing, about how following Jesus is an extreme act of faith, about this faith in Jesus is an extreme faith, because the teachings of following Jesus... The teachings of salvation really are extreme. Paul said it like this, For great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, he was acknowledging, this doesn't make sense. It defies common sense. It isn't what someone sitting around would just come up with. It's something different. On screen we have this idea that God calls us to accept and proclaim an extreme gospel message. Now follow along with me if you would. In the book of Hebrews, I'll read the first four verses and then drop down to chapter 2, verse 1. So Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, if you would, drop down to chapter 2, the first verse. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the author here of the book of Hebrews, we're not sure, I think it was a guy named Barnabas, some of you think it was Paul, and you know, the scholars fuss about that, doesn't really matter. So I'm going to use what I think, I'm going to use the word Barnabas, okay? So I think Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews for a lot of reasons, and again, he was just a Christian leader with a strong Jewish background. When Barnabas wrote this, he wrote talking about the essential nature of faith in those first verses. And then he makes his case for that original faith. And then in chapter 2 he said, let's be careful so that we don't drift away. Did you see that? Look at verse 1 again in chapter 2. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He knew that human nature tends to moderate over a period of years. Think about it. When you're young, you're all full of spit and vinegar, and you get excited, and you know everything. Remember those days when you knew everything? 
I remember those days distinctly. The first time was when I graduated from high school. I knew everything. Then I went to college and realized how ignorant I was. And then I graduated from college and I knew everything. Then I went to grad school. When I graduated, I realized how ignorant I was. And I went to school again and again. And each time I thought I knew everything. And each time I actually became more ignorant because I became more aware of what I didn't know. I started reading a book this week, and it, it's an embarrassing book to read. It's the history of modern science. And I'll be honest with you, I do not have a clue what it is talking about. Now, like I said, I've been to school a long time about different stuff, and I try to read and keep up with stuff. And I am absolutely ignorant about the things that this book talks about. It's embarrassing. So, we have to be, pay attention to what's going on around us and the tendency is to think you know everything and then to drift away from it and lose your convictions and sometimes lose the fervor that you may have at first over something. And sometimes we apply that to our Christianity. You get excited, you receive Jesus as Savior, you get on fire for Jesus and you read your Bible, go to Bible studies and things like that. And then for a lot of people, it becomes over a period of years sort of routine. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have ever slept through a sermon? You only do that when you're comfortable with the mundane. I was telling one of my earlier, one of the people I was talking to earlier that years ago I was pastor of a church and the chairman of deacons would sit down as soon as he led the prayer before the sermon and he would promptly go to sleep. And he would saw logs during my sermon. Very comfortable. And he knew I wasn't going to say anything to disturb him because he knew everything. And he was a good guy. And he went to sleep. His son graduated from college and he would come up and say that final prayer. And then before I would preach, he would sit down with his father and he would promptly go to sleep with his dad on the front pew of the church. You only do that when what was exciting to you is no longer exciting. It becomes mundane. Happens to us all. So in chapter 2, again, look at that. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So, on screen are some of the things that he mentions in those first four verses. And these are just the essentials of the Christian faith. Doesn't deal with all the other things and the implications and hard parts. Just the essentials. God's Son. Jesus is an essential of the Christian faith, isn't it? Isn't he? Who is Jesus? He is God's son. Incarnate God. God became man. Virgin birth. Nativity scene. The whole thing. We don't know all the historical details. And whether it was a cave or a mud hut is irrelevant. But the story is there. Jesus, God made man, born in the flesh. Christmas Eve. He grew, performed miracles, became aware became a threat, crucified, and resurrected. And that's the whole story of Jesus. That's the gospel, isn't it? And in that sense of resurrection, in that story of crucifixion, Jesus paid the price for our sin, made salvation possible. No one else has ever done that. That is one of those essential messages. God's Son. Another thing he mentioned there, still in verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Amazing thing about Jesus, before he was incarnate God, before he became human, 
He was the agent of creation. The scriptures teach us that God created the heavens and the earth through the work of Jesus. I don't necessarily understand how all that worked. The Trinity is kind of a hard thing to understand and you know God isn't like us but this is what I understand I don't know how God did it don't particularly care how God did it but God was the author of life God created the stuffs the raw materials water hydrogen all those things that make up the stuffs of life God created those things scientists job is to try to figure out those processes but in beginning, God created. Probably one of the most significant and meaningful passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. Because it tells us why we are here. It tells us who we are. We are creations of God. In fact, is in that simple passage and assertion that we are all creations of God, we dispel the notions of racism and gendered differences and all this nonsense that we fight about, this, this idea that anybody is better than anybody else is completely dispelled by this basic idea that we are creations of God, male and female, created in God's image. You see how profound that is? That is an extreme message. We handily ignore it when we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear that those people are just like us, whoever those people are. Sometimes those people are a different color. Sometimes those people are of a different nationality. Sometimes those people are of a different religious group. The fact that we are all created in the image of God dispels those barriers. And here we are, smart and educated and sophisticated, still struggling with some of those basic ideas that in Jesus and in Jesus alone there is salvation and that... Really, we are all the same. Jesus washed away our sin. He's all-powerful. I don't know how God does everything. And it doesn't matter. God is. The exact representation of his nature. Jesus, fully God and fully man. I was really pretty excited just a few months ago my kids are being partially homeschooled, you know that. And they learned about the Incarnation and they learned to recite the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the one that says that Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man. Now they don't understand how important that is, but they learned it. My first grader can do that. She doesn't understand how big a deal it is, but that's one of the most extreme things you can learn. That the idea that Jesus, the man, is God in the flesh. He's not a minor God. He's not just a good guy. He's God himself. Fully God. Fully man at the same time. One of the most bizarre things you can say. Like Paul said. Great is the mystery of godliness. One of the reasons that the author wrote this passage. Is because we have a tendency to drift. Sometimes just out of apathy. Sometimes because of influences. Sometimes because leaders in a culture will cause you to move away from it. For instance, we know that modern science generally denies the existence of God. Not just Christian God, but gods in general. And so they'll make these clear pronouncements. I remember seeing one on a talk show, and he was one of those more famous atheists that's making the rounds in our culture this decade. 
the last 20 years actually. And he said, you know, really, if there was a God out there, he would have done a lot better job with the human body. And he was talking specifically about the eye. He goes, anybody could create a better eye. And the talk show host gave him a pass and didn't say, well, why don't you? Because if you could make a better eye, wouldn't you? I mean, think of the money that you could make. Think of the good that you could do for humanity if you could make a body part better. Unfortunately, talk show hosts don't make their money by arguing with famous people. And so he gave him a pass. And I yelled at the TV and he didn't hear me, of course. My wife rolled her eyes at me because I yell at the TV often. Sometimes she joins me. We have to be reminded sometimes. And this is why Barnabas wrote this passage. We have to be reminded of these things. Because it's easy to drift away. It's easy to allow influences in this world to lead us away from this faith. On screen is this idea. The incarnation of Jesus. In fact, just read this with me if you would. The incarnation of Jesus, along with his life, death, and resurrection, are some of the most radical things you can believe in. There are seldom you will encounter things that are this radical because it forces you to think beyond the scientific realm. It forces you to be, think beyond the realm of logic and common sense. It doesn't make sense. Again, for great is the mystery of godliness. The fact that it doesn't please people is irrelevant. The fact that scientists debated or doubted is irrelevant. Interestingly enough, I looked up uh, several things this week and one of the things I found was there have been, you know, several dozen surveys of scientists over around the world over the last hundred years or so. And the numbers haven't changed worldwide for the last hundred years when they would poll these scientists, usually two or three thousand scientists would reply, about 51 or 52 percent of scientists believe that there is a God somewhere actively involved in creation. They don't, they fuss about the details, they fuss about the definitions, but over half of scientists, and again, the number 51, 51% 50, has been consistent over the last hundred years or so. Isn't that amazing? We're here, we hear all the time that scientists don't believe that there's a God. Well, that's simply not true. A little less than half of the scientists on the planet reject the idea that there is a God. So, when someone challenges you, or you are challenged by our culture, which generally wants to move away from faith, just remind yourself, the fact that you hear it on TV doesn't make it true. Fact is, if you hear it on screen, don't believe it. Whether that be a TV screen, or a computer screen, or the screen on your phone, be careful. Like he said, for this reason we must pay much closer to attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Those radical teachings of the gospel challenge people. People doubt it. They don't like to hear it. They don't like to hear that everybody needs Jesus. They don't like to hear that only in Jesus can you be saved. They don't like to hear that other religious faiths do not work. You see, that's a radical notion, isn't it? The idea that other religions do not lead you to God is offensive. I was in a discussion with a group of preachers, good Baptist preachers all. And several of them had gone on a trip to the Holy Land and they were talking about their tour guide. Two or three had been on a trip together and their tour guide was a good Muslim man. 
And these are good Baptist preachers. I went to school, all of them good guys. And I was disappointed because this Muslim man, at one of their breaks, they were talking, he was talking to all these Baptist preachers, and he said, well, you know, we have a lot of differences between our faiths. What do I need to do to know the God who is God? And one of my good friends said, well, you just need to be the best Muslim that you can be. He caved, didn't he? He gave over to the ways of this world. And rather than sticking with gospel teachings, he caved because it's unpopular. It's hard to look someone in the eye and say, your faith, no matter how you hold it, doesn't give you a relationship with one God. Your faith doesn't lead you to salvation. Your faith doesn't take away the burden of your sin. It's scary to say that. So Christians often back away. Which is why the author says we must not drift away from it. One of the other things about this faith that is so extreme is that God calls us to not only live out our faith, but to put it to work in our lives. Now turn over to chapter 11 if you would. Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, I'll read verse 6 and then drop down to verse 32. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now drop down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. It's one thing to say, I believe, isn't it? It's another thing to step up and live it. When I was a kid, we had this family doctor in Excelsior Springs. He's a good guy. doesn't matter who he was. He's dead now. Good guy. He was at least this tall and probably that, about that wide. Just a short, fat guy. And we used to say that, you know. And he was, he was just a great guy. He would sit down and talk to me. And I was an athlete at the time and did all those things. And he would lecture him about the evils of drinking and smoking and all those. You know, do every, he did everything that the doctors today do and, and tell you how to be healthy. Of course, he was at least 150 pounds overweight at the time. In those days, when you went and saw the doctor, if he was a smoker, he typically smoked when you were there with him in the office. So he'd sit there telling him about the evils of smoking as he would draw from his own cigarette. You know, people used to do that. He didn't know I knew it, but the bad breath he had wasn't cigarette smoke, it was alcohol. He had drunk his breakfast, I'm sure. I came to find out later, not only was he overweight and a heavy smoker, but he was also an alcoholic. All the while, he was a good guy and he lectured people about living healthy lives and not smoking and not drinking and watching your weight. You've all had doctors like that, haven't you? It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to live by those beliefs. 
I talk to Christians on a regular basis who have all these beliefs. They believe the Bible says thus and so about so many things. And yet their lives are distinctly different. The author here would say, listen, this is what I know. And then through that chapter 11, he listed all these people who lived these lives of faith. They said it and they did it. Some people were warriors. Some people were politicians and leaders. Some people were just married and lived their lives of faith. Some lost their spouses. Some saw God do the miraculous. Others made great sacrifices. And he puts those up. It's called the Hall of Fame. And he says, these are people who not only said it and believed it, they did it. And he holds that up for us. When you follow Jesus... Believe the right things, study scripture, develop an understanding of the things of faith, and then live by that faith. When the Bible says that something is good, do that. When the Bible says that something is not good for the Christian, well don't. Live out your faith. So on screen are some things that we can see. Belief and practice. And a couple of screens here we can look at. First of all, some of the extreme beliefs that we have. This issue of salvation. You are not saved by good works. You are saved by trusting in Jesus. So when people talk to you about, and they, they'll make it and just, well, I'm earning my salvation. This is going to get me into heaven. Gently correct them. No, it won't. You need to do the right thing, but that will not get you into heaven. And, and have that conversation and say, I, I believe that salvation comes from believing in Jesus. And they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 that's what I mean. And... Pursue it a little bit. Be gracious and kind. You don't need to beat people up. But some people don't understand. And you do. They need help. Well, I used to be a Christian. Now I'm not. Well, there's an issue there, isn't there? If they made a commitment to follow Jesus. They're Christian. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Maybe they do need to make a recommitment. Maybe they've dropped out of church for whatever reason. You know, as a pastor, I've heard all sorts of reasons to not go to church. Sometimes it's because the last pastor I had was a jerk. That's valid. I understand. That doesn't mean all pastors are jerks. And it surely doesn't mean Jesus isn't Lord. Don't let those decisions influence you. Well, I don't like the music. Yes. The pews are too hard. It's Sunday morning. Blah, blah, blah. You've heard them all. You said them all, right? Make sure that people understand that the point of worship is to worship the God who saved them. Biblical authority is the idea that what the Bible teaches is true. So if the Bible says, for the Christian, you need to live like this, then that's the authority. Well, I don't like that. Well, that's not relevant. What you like or don't like isn't the issue. It's what does the Bible teach. So that's up to you. Read the scriptures. Be discerning. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. And make the choice to follow Jesus. It's not very easy sometimes, I'll be honest. Submit to the Holy Spirit's influence. This is a little more vague. Sometimes when you read scripture, the teachings are clear. This is what God wants you to do. This is not what you, God wants you to do. And so you have to make those choices. Sometimes though, the Holy Spirit leads you on the inside. And this is where you have to choose is that and discern. Is this emotion? Is this the emotion of the moment? Is this the leading of the Spirit? 
And I guess here's the test for me. When I feel like I'm being led to do something, is it something that's consistent with biblical teaching? If it isn't, then that's not the Holy Spirit. It's probably just emotion. If it is consistent with biblical teaching, I mean it might be something that God wants you to do, then consider that. But that's up for you. So salvation and biblical authority and, and the Holy Spirit's influence, those things are all important. And then on, on the next screen, a couple of things. This is how you submit to God's leadership. First of all, be gracious and kind. Love people. Love people. Not just good people. People. How do you mean love them? Well, Jesus made it very simple. Treat people like you want to be treated. That's it. Nothing special there. In any situation, treat people like you want to be treated. If someone disagreed with you, would you like for them to yell at you and embarrass you and hurt you? Or would you rather them confront you in a gracious manner? Well, you know the answer to that. If someone, if you were broken down on the side of the road and you needed help, would you want someone to stop and help you? Or at least to stop and make a phone call for you or something? Well, you know the answer to that. Put that to work. I know it's inconvenient. Follow teachings of Scripture when it comes to other people. Restraint of passions and desires. This is a tough one. This means when you're angry, stop and get your mouth under control. Before you start to speak, get your mouth under control. Take a deep breath. Catch your breath. If you have to disagree, and there are situations like that, I get it. This is where you speak respectfully. You do not have to insult people who disagree with you. We in this culture have forgotten this. And Christians are just as bad as everybody else. You know, I talk about my Christian friends on Facebook. I wonder sometimes what in the world is going on with them. Because they have no longer practiced restraint. They are insulting and vile to people who disagree with them on political issues. Folks, this ought not to be. Nothing Christian about it. You can disagree with people in a way that honors Christ. That's all God calls you to do. He does not call you to agree with everybody. He calls you to be Christian in your convictions, to be Christian in your relationships, to be Christian even in your disagreements with other people. Don't give your anger and your emotions and passions power over you. You can control that. On screen is a final thought. A faith that is based upon the old story of Jesus, his incarnation, sinless life, and crucifixion and resurrection is an extreme faith because the very nature of Christianity is extreme. Great is the mystery of godliness. And fortunately for us, it is a faith that can bring us life and joy both now and forever. We're not better than others because we follow Jesus. We're just better people than we would normally be. Our behavior is better. Our thoughts are better. Not than anybody else, just us. What I want to do, and this is how I pray sometimes, is God help me to be better than I am because I know how I am. And I pray, help me to be better than I am. Help me to be my best self. Help me to be a way that honors you. 
Jesus knew that we would forget this stuff, just like Barnabas. And so he said, when you guys get together, eat this meal. And when you eat this meal, remind yourself of who you are in Christ. I'm going to ask that the deacons come forward and get ready as we serve this meal. This meal is a way for us to not only memorialize what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death and burial and resurrection, but it's a way for us to be reminded that we are Christians. Not because we're smart, but because Jesus has saved us. That we follow Jesus, no one else. In this church, if you follow Jesus, we ask you to join us in this meal. If you're not a Christian, join us and consider joining the family of Jesus. By receiving Jesus as Savior. Would you stand with me please? The routine is here. After the prayer, you come down and get the cup. And go back to your pew. And then begin to fiddle with those things and you know how to do it. If someone is struggling and look around, if they're struggling to peel that open, help them. There's no hurry. If you make a mess and spill it, that's okay. We'll get you another one. No great shakes, okay? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this life that you have given us, for a faith that challenges us, that challenges us to be better than ourselves, that challenges us to think, that sometimes just challenges us to believe. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul tells the story. He wasn't there, but God appeared to him later and told him what had happened. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul continues the story. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul explains, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is just one way that we proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The bread symbolizes his flesh. The wine, his blood. We follow Jesus, crucified and resurrected Son of God. And that's what makes us Christian. And that's just the beginning of a journey that can change our lives. Nate's going to lead us in a closing hymn of invitation. Sing with me if you would as Nate leads us. Make those decisions that will allow Jesus to have sway over your life. Would you stand with me please? child and forever I am.
taking aid. Remember on your way out that there will be offering plates, and those go specifically towards benevolence, so this goes to people that need help. George, would you lead us in closing prayer? Father, we ask that you remind us of the mysteries that you have laid before us and that you help us to live by them each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.